From WBEZ Chicago and PRX, this is Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott. And I'm Jim DeRogatis. Al Green sang some of the most acclaimed soul records of the 70s. So when he decided to leave it all behind for the church, many questioned why. And everybody around him certainly felt like, what What are you doing, Al? You've got a million-dollar career. We're all hanging on you. We discuss Al Green's life and his pivotal first gospel record, The Bell Album. Plus, we review the new one from Taylor Swift. We can't make any promises now, can we be? That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. You're listening to Sound Opinions, Greg, and later in the show, we are going to review the sixth album from Taylor Swift, Reputation. Uh, it's going to be inescapable. This is going to be the pop uh, giant titanic iceberg of the <laughs> next year, at least. You know it. We're going to try to offer some insights that maybe you haven't heard elsewhere. It is absolutely going to be inescapable, Jim. Going to be number one on that pop album chart as we speak. Uh, that's going to be later on in the show, though. First, we're going to talk about soul and gospel legend Al Green. Don't you know that I'm still So people know Al Green, I think, for hits like Love and Happiness and Let's Stay Together and I'm So Tired of Being Alone and I could go on and on and on. So much incredible music. We are going to, however, talk about his life and a lesser-known album from his catalog, The Bell Album. It's a record that means an incredible amount to both of us, Greg. That's right, Jim. Uh, This came at a point in Al Green's career uh, when he was still very commercially successful as an artist, but uh, he shows up at Willie Mitchell's house one day, his producer, and says, "Uh, Willie, I'm going gospel. And uh, he really didn't turn back to uh, secular music for several decades. He, uh, He became a preacher. He built a church. And he devoted his life to spirituality, and the Bell album was a huge turning point in his uh, career as an artist. It is one of those transitional albums that was also a masterpiece. In retrospect, it is considered one of his greatest works of the 70s, but also one of his most underrated works. You know, while Al's songs are known around the world, the man himself is an enigma. To get a better sense of who exactly the Reverend Al Green is, we sat down with Jimmy McDonough, author of a new biography called Soul Survivor. I got to tell you, with this guy, there's so many things that I still don't know. And I think most people, even those closest to him, don't know. And I don't think that's ever going to change. Now, Al's full of surprises. He may he may reveal all tomorrow. <laughs> and that wouldn't surprise me. Mm. But so far, I would say uh, the bets in Vegas are, are off on that one. Give us the thumbnail biography of Al, where he started, linking up with High Records, and where he was in those weird, dark days of the mid-'70s. Well, uh, you know, he grew up in in Forest City, Arkansas, came out of a gospel background, sang gospel music with his family. The family had moved to Grand Rapids, got thrown out of his own home for playing a Jackie Wilson single as a teen. Mm. Hey, you! He he had to be a complete fish out of water coming from Arkansas to Grand Rapids, Michigan. 
Yeah, I think so. And I just think uh, that Al was such an ethereal, eccentric fellow anyway. I think he had a bit of a rough time in the land of the North. And uh, I think it only hardened his resolve in a way uh, to do what he was going to do uh, one way or another. And, and Jimmy, in reading your book, I think I got the sense of here was a guy walking around with a big chip on his shoulder from an early age. Like nobody told him he was any good for a long time. And it was almost like he had to force himself on people and say, I am good and I'm going to be great and I'm going to show all of you. Uh, is, that, is that kind of what you thought? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, early on, I think he thought he was special and he was going to get somewhere and and nobody was going to stop him. The problem is, is that <laughs> Al operates on some some high frequency only small woodland creatures can hear. Mm. So it took a while for that message to penetrate. Uh, he cut one record, a backup train. Backup train. And so he has this hit record that fades away fast. And uh, he, on a gig in Texas, he runs into Willie Mitchell. Uh, you can't talk about Al Green without Willie Mitchell. And he was the guy who kind of grounded Al to earth. The, the Memphis producer, for those of you out there who don't know, uh, uh, who ran, uh, mostly uh, ran high records and is really responsible for, for uh, breaking down the Al Green sound and, and, and in a certain way breaking Al down in the process. Al was a much rougher singer uh, before he met uh, uh, Willie. And Willie just honed in on what he knew Al was capable of somehow, and uh, it resulted in these, you know, what I think are, you know, certainly among the finest soul records of all time. Willie Mitchell hears something in him. Lends Al some money, thinking he'll never see the guy again. He shows up one morning, I think it's 6 a.m. Willie thought he was a, a, a guy there to fix his house. <laughs> they start making these records with the incredible high rhythm band, A Whole Story Unto Itself, all in the book. I love those guys. One of the, the great rhythm the sections of all time. Oh, you said it. And what characters... I mean, the joy of this book for me was hanging out with them guys and, and, and learning all about uh, their personalities and how it interlocked. They're as important as Willie, no doubt. They played on all those records, and Willie raised them from kids. I mean, it's just unbelievable. He taught them each what to play and, maybe more importantly, what not to play. Mm. But from there, you, you know, Al just became a superstar with the zillion hits we know and love. Uh, love and happiness, here I am, come and take me, uh, tired of being alone. Hey, baby. 
you uh, at one point in the book you write, uh, you know, Mitchell basically took a crazy gospel-based singer in a jazzier setting and tells him to rein it in, which Al initially, you know, bucked against. But then they come up with a record like Let's Stay Together, and Al goes, uh, oh, all right, I get what you're trying to get me to do. I'm so in love with you. Whatever you want to do is all talk about the formula is that it kind of encapsulated that's the first example of it maybe yeah 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 it's that whole restraint thing okay nobody plays too much on a willie mitchell record i mean he he, he did not like guitar players the first guitar player in his band was teeny hodges and that's because willie mitchell taught him every note he played mm, okay mm. and every note he didn't i mean this guy was so particular like finicky like a cat I mean, he didn't want any extra stuff from the drummer. It all minimal, all minimal. If anybody was going to provide the extra stuff, it was going to be Al. So there's a tension to those records because they're almost like uh, an M.C. Escher drawing. You know, the guy who draws like the interlocking hands and um, mm -hmm. sort of mathematical art. OK, so you have like this mathematical music and then you throw Al that's like these Jackson Pollock blobs on it. <laughs> and, and somehow, somehow it just weds perfectly. Mm. And, and, and it feels so good, those, those high records. I mean, you just, you want to move, you want to sing along, even if you're tone deaf. Uh, they just feel so good. And yet in the background, there is this tension about them. And, uh, you know, it's just uh, perfect art, perfect art, man. You're talking about this restraint that uh, Mitchell sort of imposed on him, and he didn't realize, Al himself didn't realize that that's when he was at his best, his most natural voice. Willie Mitchell, obviously a jazz-steeped musician, composer, arranger, uh, very experienced uh, artist uh, before he met Al Green already. And it seemed like running into Al Green and meeting him uh, was kind of that moment where he realized, I've got the singer I've been waiting for all my life. It reminds me a little bit of the Sam Phillips story when he found Presley. You know, Presley finally walked into his studio and he go, this is the guy I've been waiting for for a long time. I didn't know who it was, but now that I, he's in front of my eyes, I, 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 this is what I've been waiting for for a long time. 
Yeah, absolutely perfect analogy. Exactly. Willie, had, you know, he'd made a lot of great records there at Royal Studios. And, and I get into the whole history of High and all the all the, 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 the pedigree of the studio and all the crazy stuff that happened there. But he wanted a singer. He wanted to go into pop, and he, he, he had a particular vision. And boy, when Al, when Al came in, it didn't happen overnight. It actually took uh, uh, months of trial and error. But once they hit that fo- formula, say, with uh, Tired of Being Alone, Man, it, the sky was the limit. They just uh, they just refined and, uh, and perfected. And uh, it, yeah, what can I say? You're you're absolutely right. It was like uh, uh, Elvis walking in on Sam, and man, Willie just uh, uh, took it took it to the took it to the uh, to the heights. Al could voice these feelings that uh, Willie knew existed and wanted to put out there. Uh, Willie wanted hit records. I mean, it was a weird mix of all these things, and it was just just like you say, Sam Phillips Elvis, Willie Mitchell, Al Green. It, was, it, it, it couldn't have been more perfect. Couldn't have been more perfect. We'll have more with Al Green biographer Jimmy McDonough after a short break, and we'll discuss Al Green's pivotal Bell album. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Wait a minute. Something's going wrong Someone's on the phone Three o'clock in the morning Yeah Talking about How she can make it right Yeah Yeah Happiness is when You really feel good about somebody There's nothing wrong listening to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with my partner Jim Dirigatis, and that's a man who needs no introduction, Al Green. We're talking this week with Jimmy McDonough, author of Soul Survivor, a biography of Al Green, and uh, we're talking specifically about his 1977 record, The Bell Album. Now, that album came at a point when Al was still a hugely commercial pop artist, but also feeling a pull towards the church. Absolutely, Greg. At the peak of his success, Al Green was feeling that clash between the sacred and the profane. So many soul artists have dealt with that. It's a cornerstone of R&B. Jimmy McDonough says the decisive moment for Al happened at Disneyland, of all places. 
I think he was uncomfortable with his success in terms of his spiritual background. It always kind of nipped and nagged at him. And uh, one night outside of Disneyland at the hotel there, he had a, a born-again experience. You have to say it again. And it was just uh, right in the back pocket of his mind that he was going to go back into the church. Uh, it took some years uh, and a horrible incident. Uh, this woman, Mary Woodson, who he had a relationship with, who uh, died in his home by uh, Al's own gun, uh, was ruled a suicide. Very convoluted, uh, intricate tale, uh, but definitely uh, obviously had an impact on, on Al Green's life. And uh, uh, a year after that, that was October 74, a year after that, he bought a church. Uh, and then eventually, a, a year or two after that, he said to Willie, I can't do this anymore. I've got to go gospel. And Willie, uh, how do I put this in polite terms, <laughs> said, well, you know, I don't cut gospel. Mm-hmm. I can't yeah. do it. Yeah. He didn't, he didn't uh, like uh, evangelists and preachers, he said, right? Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. He uh, showed uh, one of the heroes, to my mind, one of the heroes of the book, uh, Ruben Rube Fairfax, uh, said that Willie opened up a drawer and showed him all these bad checks that preachers <laughs> had written. <laughs> and uh, so that's how. Uh, yeah, Willie was hardcore, man. So then uh, Al steps out on his own and uh, right into this this unexpected, brilliant, quirky, wondrous, wonderful album called Bell. There's only one like it that I know of. Even Al never really returned to it. I, 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 when I think about it, I always think it's, it's like capturing a romance. Uh, two people really into each other. It's uh, all uh, Technicolor rainbows. He, he kind of caught that moment with a brand new band, produced it himself. Played, uh, played lead and acoustic guitar, really, for the yeah, first time. Very important point. Very important point. Al Green, in my opinion, is a hellacious guitar mm-hmm, player. Yeah. Now, he's not like, you, you're not going to get like uh, Steve Vai out of him or whoever those kind of guys are. But in terms of a feel, uh, if you listen to, say, Jesus is Waiting, a, a thing he cut with Willie Mitchell, sublime, that's Al on guitar. And and it tends to get somehow more personal when Al is, uh, is handling the axe there. It's primitive, and it, it moves him somehow, and it's all over the Bell album. Fantastic. Just fantastic well, stuff. Well, you, you have a great description of this band that he put together, this ad hoc band with Al as kind of like the lead vocalist, but also the lead guitar player, a gospel garage band. 
you know, when you think about where his career was at this point, it was somewhat rudderless. He just had this string of hits with high and, and the high rhythm section. I mean, as you said, the Hodges brothers, uh, people like that were just these master musicians trained by Willie Mitchell. And suddenly all that's gone. And he didn't seem to be <laughs> flustered by it at all. He just said, no, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this thing. I'm going to buy the studio. I'm going to sink a half million dollars into it. And I'm going to produce the record myself. And he's 12 records deep into his career at this point. Um, he just seemed to be very confident at the same, at the same time. Maybe uh, ridiculously so, right? I mean, did you feel like this was kind of like, what are you doing, Al? You know, like anybody yeah, would have yeah, said well, to him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and everybody around him certainly felt like, what, what are you doing, Al? you got a million-dollar career. We're all hanging on you. And you want to go into this studio you built yourself by yourself with this band of, 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 some would say maybe on some level, questionable characters, certainly not the polished perfection that was high rhythm, and make an album about God. Al does what Al wants to do when Al wants to do it, and he did it this time. Uh, this is how funky the situation was. Bill Cantrell, who was one of the original founders of High back in the rockabilly days and the instrumental days, Al s- snuck him into his side and had him build the studio. But Bill liked to go fishing so much that before they cut any of the tracks on Bell, they had to ask Bill if he wasn't fishing and he was available. <laughs> so we're talking about a, a bunch of funky characters. Uh, Ruben had never played bass before. Uh, this is one of the guys I mentioned earlier. Uh, Ruben Roubaix Fairfax Jr. Uh, was a guitar player. Now dig this. This guy was a rock guitar player, right? He played in a cover band. What was it called? Grand Slam. <laughs> that played the hits of the day. Uh, a friend of his was in Al's band, and Larry Lee, the great guitarist who was with Al forever, um, leaves. They need a replacement. Roubaix stops by on the way to a road thing with, with his band, just starts jamming with them a bit, and Al comes over and anoints him with some oil. I mean, <laughs> Ruben didn't know what was going on here. And at first he said no, but the more he thought about it, he thought, I'm going to take a chance on this. Since Al was playing guitar, Ruben started playing bass, a borrowed bass from a a blues guy that he knew. And he starts playing this thumpy, funky, uh, like Larry Graham style bass.
that's one of the stars of this record. I mean, because yeah. you never heard this on an Al Green record before. Somehow it just fits this record perfectly, like every other weird thing on this record fits perfectly. It's a record that's completely um, uh, out of its time in so many ways, both biographically for Al. He had been born again. He'd had this horrible experience. That ex-girlfriend dumps boiling grits on him and then kills herself in his house. Right. He's coming yeah. to God. He's going to, from this point on, not make secular music anymore. It's going to be gospel. So in between the high years and in between the the current Reverend Al of the church right. is this moment of transition. And the culture's in transition. Yeah. You know, disco's happening and punk is exploding. And then Al's doing this thing, which in some ways is like punk and disco and and everything that came before and everything that would come in the future. It doesn't fit any pigeonhole. See the smile. You're right. You're right. It's totally, as you say, it's out of time somewhere, which, of course, just adds to the timeless quality. I can go to this record anytime, any day, and you're just in it. It's it's one of those things. It's uh, like Neil Young always talks about capturing that moment. This was really Al's crazy horse, this band. Yeah. and 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 he 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 said in an interview he was out to just capture them getting to know each other. He wrote a lot of the songs on the spot. Uh, you know, some of the takes Ruben said. You know, he was learning them as they were recording him. It's that that story of of that 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 spontaneousness that Al was after and caught beautifully on this record, boy. And uh, I think people revere it now in, in hindsight as well because they seem to, as you sort of rightly point out, uh, the line on the very first song on the record, the title track, it's you that I want, but it's him that I need. Him with a capital H, referring to God, 
Um, you know, he, as you detail in, in, in somewhat explicit detail, I might add, Jimmy, in the book, uh, his many, many dalliances, many sexual <laughs> affairs throughout with numerous yeah. women. Title song, do you think that Al Green, as he was performing this, writing this, uh, was aware of the fact that I am making this break with my past on this song, on this specific record, and never shall I go back? Or are we reading too much into it? No, I think so. As Ruben told me time and again, he torched his career. I mean, he went from playing, you know, big, big arenas to playing uh, churches in Philadelphia. I mean, he just walked away from it all. And, and a lot of people were in his ear telling him not to do it. And, and you got to admire this guy's tenacity. It's heartfelt. I mean, I was saying how it was capturing a love affair at the beginning of its uh, uh, flowering. Well, the love affair is him and God. Mm -hmm. And you can hear he he was carrying this big weight of a pop career. He didn't want it anymore. The previous record he did with Willie, it's really kind of a turkey. You can hear Al walking through it. You can just feel him on this record going, I'm free. This is what I feel. This is what I believe. I don't think he would ever hit it again so deeply as on this record. It's just, it's breathtaking, I have to say. And one thing about the Bell album, Jimmy, um, that you paint in this book, it comes becomes apparent to me is that Willie was such a taskmaster, and and you know eventually him and Al, it was like they had one brain; they were thinking alike. But a lot of that was Willie Mitchell kind of training Al Green to realize who the best Al Green was and and make a million dollars over and over again. On right. the Bell album, you hear him completely liberated from all that; he can do whatever he wants. And there's an incredible amount of spontaneity in that. Um, there's a, uh, an anecdote later in the book where he makes a record with The Roots. And Amir right. Questlow-Thompson is talking about him walking into the room and just starting to sing before he even introduces himself to the band. It's like he's feeling the groove and he starts, <laughs> he starts riffing on it. And Tom, uh, yeah. Questlove is just amazed. Like this guy basically made that song up before he'd even met the band. And it was like we, we had a, a complete take. And the Bell album, in many ways, feels like that sort of liberating moment where Al Green discovered something new about himself and was just overwhelmed with the joy of, of doing it. 
there's a number of tracks on the record that feel like they're totally recorded in the moment. That Georgia mm-hmm. Georgia Boy track. Why is he singing about a Georgia boy? This autobiographical song, he, he, he's not a Georgia boy, but he makes it feel like it's this personal, deeply personal thing. I like you when I got the record the first time, and I was listening to it, and I go, what is this? But I can't stop listening to it. This is the brilliance of this eccentric guy. He was smart enough to say, "Let whatever happens here with you guys and me in this state, let's just capture it and make it an album and voila bell There was something magical about it. What what is it about like a track like Georgia Boy um, that just sort of res? It's so unlike anything else he's recorded. I guess is one one thing, right? Yeah, yeah, and he's just so deep into it. I mean, you know, this is a very charismatic performer, right? And and he just manages to suck you right in inside, right? And and, and you hear it on that song or uh, Dream, one of my favorites. Yeah. And for the first time, he was using uh, African American backup singers. The the white trio, uh, with with a few exceptions, uh, had been the main backup voices on those Al records. So you had a a gospelish African American trio there singing behind him, and and uh, one of the backup singers, uh, uh, Margaret Foxworth, claims to me that they were standing around the room, and Al said, "What do you do with a dream?" He was trying to write this song, and she mm. said, "Well, well, you want to make it last forever," mm-hmm. <laughs> and to hear him sing, "Make it last forever," in that song, man. If it doesn't just uh, uh, put your hair in curlers, I, I don't know what what will. <laughs> thing too uh the spontaneity i think is the the key for me jimmy um is it a case where nobody could come to him afterward and said hey you know al this this is really great but this sounds more like a demo why don't you clean this up a little bit um was it just a case of being having that freedom just to be able to do whatever he wanted at that point 
Well, you know, you hit on something really interesting there because what happened was he ended up going with uh, this character, Hal Bennett, who ran Cream Records, and I get into all that in the book. Uh, but he really, he was at the end of his career. He was like one of these old-timey uh, record uh, <laughs> pirates, uh, yeah. shall we say. And, and this was more of a hobby for him, this label. But he, 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 had, he kept having in the back of his mind that Al was going to come back and uh, ring the them golden pop bells again. If Al had come in there with, you know, an album of love songs to a donkey, I think he would have said yes. <laughs> but there was a great showdown where uh, uh, Ruben talks about in the book where Willie plays him this stuff that he'd been cutting and Al plays the Bell album, and the Bell album wins. And and I know Willie hated the Bell album. Mm, oh, really? He just thought it was junk. Like, you know, where did you get – these guys can't play. Except, you, you can imagine all the criticisms. And, and yet Bennett, a uh, wily character that he is, knows if I'm going to make Al happy, i got to let him do what he's going to do. And I think he thought, you know, next time it'll be Son of Love and Happiness – Oh, ho, ho. <laughs> didn't work out that way. Yeah. But it's just this happy accident of all these weird things coming together. And Al being the master of weird things, he he plays it like an ace, baby. I mean, it just all <laughs> it just lays out so beautifully. And, and the end result, of course, is this record we keep yapping about. I remember when the record came out, and I thought, "Wow, I I want twenty more of these." <laughs> and, and there's there's patches of it, but you know the record was not a hit. And yeah. Al is an astute businessman in his own snaky, secretive way. And I really think he thought, "Well, look, if I'm in this for the long haul, and I'm a gospel singer, I got to behave like the conventional gospel singer, and I got to make conventional gospel records." been talking to Jimmy McDonough, author of the new book, Soul Survivor, about the Reverend Al Green. Jimmy, thank you so much for coming on Sound Opinions again. Oh, thank you, man. This book is um, close to my heart. That wraps up our conversation about Al Green. But as always, we want to hear from you. What is your favorite Al Green record? Call and leave a message on our hotline, 888-859-1800, or find us on Twitter or Facebook. Up next, we review the new album by Taylor Swift. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Baby, I'm so glad you're here, baby. Made my love grow strong. Baby. Baby. 
Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRogatis, and that is Taylor Swift with a song called I Did Something Bad from her new album, Reputation. Like her lover, try to ignore her. You probably can't. Taylor Swift is going to dominate the next year of pop music, just as she has in all the previous years when she has put out an album. She's one of the biggest selling artists of an era when nobody really sells records, certainly not in the volume that Taylor Swift does. Uh, She sold 30 million records in the United States alone. This is her sixth studio album. She is also the first woman and fifth act overall to win Album of the Year twice. So here's a career that started out as a country pop singer-songwriter, a Nashville-based artist in the early part of the 2000s, and then shifting over to the pop realm with her fourth album, Red, elements of EDM and rock in there, doubled down in the 1989 album in 2014, which made her the first act to have three albums sell a million copies within one week in the United States. Again, this is during the streaming era. Here is an artist who was actually selling a physical product, digital product, to her very loyal fans. She's won 10 Grammys, four straight number one albums. Reputation is destined to be the fifth in a row. Here's a track from Reputation. We're going to review it in a minute, but here's Getaway Car from Taylor Swift on Sound Opinions. It was the best of times, the worst of crimes. I struck a match and blew your mind, but I didn't mean it. And you didn't see it. Were black, the lies were white, and shades of gray and candlelight. I wanted to leave him, I needed a reason. X marks the spot where we fell apart. He poisoned the well, I was lying to myself. I knew it from the first old fashioned, we were cursed. We never had a shotgun shot in the dark. You were driving the getaway car, we were flying, but we never get far. Don't pretend it's such a That was Getaway Car by Taylor Swift from album number six, Reputation. It's working a little uh, uh, storytelling magic there, Greg, channeling Bonnie and Clyde. Uh, This is not an original thought. It's been said many times. There are two modes in Taylor Swift's songwriting. One is swooning, puppy love, crushing, and the other is uh, eviscerating. She is the master, or the mistress, I should say, of the put-down. You know, I've been wrestling with this album since the minute I got it, listening so many times because she means an incredible amount to her fan base. And pop-oriented critics are fascinated by her. They hear so much depth. 
You know, Greg, uh, the other day I parked somewhere and I parked next to a brand new fully loaded Tesla. And this thing was gleaming to the extent that it was like like glow-in-the-dark nuclear the way that car in Back in the Future was, right? Yeah. And I got a little too close to it when I opened my door and I didn't hit it. And, and it started talking to me. And I'm thinking... What is this, right? And I go home and I look it up. It cost $160,000. Wow. This is like the ultimate car, right, that you could have. If somebody gave it to me for free, I don't think I'd want to drive it. I just wouldn't feel, like, comfortable. It's too perfect. And that is what I think reputation is. It's just too perfect. It, it, you can't, can't knock it, but I can't enjoy it. Money could not buy a better produced circa 2018 pop product. There are pleasures here to be had, uh, certainly, right? But ultimately, it is so slick that it kind of goes in one ear and out the other, leaving you very little to grasp, to come back to. I mean, hooks galore, but what is Taylor singing about? She's in love, and good for her. I'm happy, right, at age 27, that she's finding love. That's half of it. And the other half is, my God, she is still complaining about Kanye West and other people who have disrespected her. It was so nice being friends again. There I was giving you a second chance, but you stabbed me in the back while shaking my head. And therein lies the issue. Friends don't try to trick you, get you on the phone and mind twist you. And so I took an axe to amend it I admire her strength. I am glad she takes no guff from anyone. But how long are you going to milk uh, Kanye West or anybody else disrespecting you when you are, as you said in your introduction, the queen of the pop universe, right? So what are you complaining about? There's a solipsism here, a self-centeredness that the only other person on the pop spectrum who matches her is Kanye West, mm. you know, incredibly. Kanye's last uh, three albums have been marred by him not being able to talk about anything other than being Kanye West. And Taylor has a few other things in her arsenal. But I mean, look, you know, the nadir that crystallized it for me is when in Gorgeous, I actually stopped to look up to make sure that this lyric was exactly what she was singing. You make me so happy, it turns back to sad I guess I'll just stumble back to my cats. You make me so happy, it turns back to sad. There's nothing I hate more than what I can't have. Guess I'll just stumble on home to my cats. Alone. Unless you want to come along. On Saturday Night Live, when she did... Call It What You Want as the second song this last week and did it as a stripped-down acoustic number, it mm. was it was pretty impressive. I guess I crumbled overnight I brought a knife to a gunfight They took the crown, but it's all right All the liars are calling me one Nobody's heard from me for months I'm 
But the overproduction, the glossiness, the just mega-ness of this album, I can't say I enjoy it. I can't say I hate it. I guess that makes it a try it on our buy it, try it, trash it scale. Yeah, I think there's an impulse to either have it, uh, you know, she's she's the worst artist of all time or she's an incredible artist and the most important artist of our time. And I think uh, the reality falls somewhere <laughs> in the middle. You know, she's undeniably talented. I, I think uh, the fact that she sort of transformed herself from this country singer-songwriter act to more of a pop act, going for a more of a mainstream sound, uh, clearly she is defining what the mainstream is. But on this album, I especially see her uh, hiring people like Jack Antonoff and Max Martin, with whom she's worked in the past. Super producers she's, of the moment. She is aiming for, you know, the middle of the middle, and, and she's getting there by appropriating a lot of EDM, a lot of hip-hop cadences in her vocals. She's far removed from that sort of intimate singer-songwriter that she was in her early years. And I think a lot of her teenage fans related to the fact that she was reflecting their lives back to them. I'm not sure that Taylor Swift is reflecting anyone's life back to them except for other celebrities when she starts going after these people who have dissed her in the past. Now it's now she's talking about ex-boyfriends like Calvin Harris and, yeah. and Kanye West and Kim Kardashian, and who can really relate to that? So I think she's somewhat less relatable. This music feels more remote to me than it ever has. The one moment on the record where she sort of breaks through that is right at the end, that song New Year's Day. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking if she had done an entire album of songs in this vein, this sort of intimate, more stripped down kind of record, uh, there's a real person behind that song. And I relate to it in a, in a big way. I think it's a, it's a beautiful piece of music. There's glitter on the floor after the party. Girls carrying the shoes down in the lobby. Candle wax and Polaroids on the hardwood floor You and me from the night before But don't read the last page But I stay When you're lost and I'm scared and you're turning away I want your midnights But I'll be cleaning up bottles with you on New Year's Day you know, and also, uh, Greg, here we are at this watershed moment in culture right now uh, where people are are bravely coming forward and challenging toxic masculinity, right? Yeah. And, and what could this brilliant 27-year-old self-empowered woman have said if she broadened it beyond, uh, like, high school lunchroom a problem with Calvin, well, Calvin Harris and, 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 and Kanye West. I, I don't want to necessarily tell her what to do, but I'm going to evaluate what she is doing. And, and, and she is an undeniable pop craftsman. What I am missing is that relatability and intimacy, and, and she achieves it on that track. There are a couple of more outings, like the one getaway car that we'd played, which is just a superb example of contemporary pop music. It's not a, a, you know, in terms of what she's saying in the song is one thing, but the way it's crafted, there's an undeniable craftsman at work here. Uh, and there's enough of that on this record to make it a try it, but it's certainly, certainly you, you feel like Taylor Swift has got a great album in her and she hasn't made it yet. So a double try it for Taylor Swift. I hope you're still unlisted because otherwise the hate calls are going to come in. <laughs> Greg, what do we have on the show next week? 
Next week, Jim, with Thanksgiving right around the corner, we're going to share some of our favorite songs that say thank you. We want to thank our production staff, as always, Greg. Sound Opinions is produced by Brendan Banasak, Evan Chung, Alex Claiborne, and Iona Contreras. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So give us a call on our hotline, 888-859-1800. A telephone wakes me in the morning Have to get up to answer the call So I think I'll go back to the family Where no one can ring me at all New Messages Hi, Jim and Greg. I was listening to your episode um, speaking with Julie Klausner, and I think it was Jim exclaims that he had never met a female Jethro Tull fan. Well, I'm here to tell you that you've met another Jethro Tull fan. My name is Chelsea. I'm from Durham, North Carolina, and I have loved Jethro Tull for as long as I can remember. And Thick as a Brick is my absolute favorite of their albums. Recently, or not recently, a few years ago, they toured the Thick as a Brick album with the, um, the follow-up, and that was probably one of the best concert experiences of my life, especially because I had always said, I just want to hear all of Sick as a Brick live. Um, they did the, the original first album and then had an intermission and did the second. And honestly, I, I walked out at the intermission because I just wanted to have that pure memory and feeling of that first original Sick as a Brick album. It was awesome. So I just wanted to call in. I love you guys. I'd love to meet you guys someday. Bye. Hey guys, Tom here calling from the West Suburbs, uh, Wheaton to be exact. Love the show, just calling in to say, my God, crowdfunding as a way of paying for albums as an aspiring recording engineer, oh, that gives me hope. I gotta say, I'm a recent graduate from Columbia College. Unfortunately, I didn't get a chance to take your class, Jim, but, uh, my goodness, in an industry that is becoming so much more about live performances these days, uh, I was, you know, getting a little nervous about the recording part of it and how these things would be continued to be funded, you know, without the major hand of the label having a part in it. And uh, it gives me hope. Got to uh, figure out a way to capitalize on that. All right, thanks, guys. Big fan. Talk to you later. <laughs> My name is Kathy. I'm from Chicago. Um, I'm calling you today because sometimes you do an episode that makes me completely question your musical wisdom. I just got done listening to the musical costumes episode, and I can't believe you didn't even mention the band Fish. who has been playing musical costumes on Halloween since 1994 when they did the White Album. 
it made me completely wonder if you're exposing me to the right things. But I did like that you gave 10 minutes to Gordon Downey. My vote is you do a whole episode to try and get Americans to start understanding the greatness of the Tragically Hip. Okay, thanks for your show. Bye. First thing we climb a tree And maybe then we talk Or sit silently And listen to our thoughts the Illusions of someday No more messages. To share your opinions on Sound Opinions, call 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.